Good morning, uh, Ocean View Community Church. Uh, so good to be with you. My name is Santosh Dinan. I'm coming to you from Ithaca, New York, which is in central New York. Uh, and glad to be with you, even if it's in this kind of weird virtual way. Someday, hopefully, I can come and visit you in, uh, on beautiful Vancouver Island there. Uh, also, special thanks to Pastor Darren, your pastor, for the invitation to uh, share with you this morning. Uh, Darren and I have been friends since our student days at Regent College, and uh, I just have a lot of respect for him as a pastor and as a leader, which uh, I'm sure you do as well. He has served you well and continues to serve you well. So this morning, I am excited to uh, join with this series that you've been on in the book of Micah. I've been following a few of uh, the services online of your church and uh, have really been impressed with how Darren has really set the context. And even, this is, even though this is an Old Testament book, he's made it very, very relevant uh, for our, our current day. And so hopefully uh, this sermon will be in line with what you've already been doing. This morning, I'm going to be reading or sharing from Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Micah 6, verses 1 to 8. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up and let's, uh, let's study God's Word together. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Our passage this morning is laid out uh, initially as a legal charge being presented in a court of law. We have language like, plead my case. The Lord has a case against his people. He's, so he's lodging a charge against Israel. So, so what is the case? What is the charge? Of what is the nation of Israel guilty? Well, God reminds them of his actions towards them. Verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. You see, the central act of salvation in the Old Testament is the rescue of the people of Israel out of slavery. Also in verse 4, God says, I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead you. And so God didn't leave the Israelites leaderless. He sent leaders who would help them, who would guide them in the wilderness. Verse 5, when Balak, remember what Balak plotted and what Balaam answered. 
So here is a reference to Numbers 22, uh, starting in verse 1. This is the incident that God is referring to. Then the Israelites moved on and encamped in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan, opposite Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel did to the Amorites, and Moab feared the Israelites greatly because they were numerous. Moab was in dread of the Israelites. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will devour everything around us as an ox devours the grass of the field. So Balak is threatened by the nation of Israel, seeing what they had done to other nations. And so he comes up with a plan. He decides to reach out to a prophet that he knows is very powerful, that whatever this prophet prophesies comes to be. So he reaches out to Balaam and he, he explains what's wrong. A people has come out of Egypt. They've covered the earth and they're settling down opposite me. Now come, curse this people for me, since they're stronger than I am. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And then uh, Balaam tells King Balak, well, I, I can't do this. God's not allowing me to do it. But Balak is insistent and keeps coming back. Please, please, please help me. And finally, um, Balaam uh, uh Balaam relents, but finds that he can't curse the people. He can only bless them. And so that's why in Micah chapter 6, God tells him, look what I did. I stopped a king from destroying you. I superseded over a prophet, and I made it impossible for you to be cursed. And then in verse 5, we have, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, Shittim was the last station before crossing the Jordan, and Gilgal was the first station after they entered the Promised Land. And so God is, is saying, remember, I carried you all the way from the last stop before the Jordan to the first stop after the Jordan. I was with you, carrying you. So in these first opening verses, God is simply pointing out all that he has done. And then there's this question in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In response to what God has done, the prophet is thinking about what he and the nation should do. What do we bring God? What do we need to do to worship and obey God? Do we need to bring this extravagant offering, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Or even more valuable, do I bring my own child, my own son? Do I offer my firstborn for my transgression? What do I do? What do you want from us, God? And this is a question we all need to wrestle with. God, what do you want from us? What do we need to do? How much do we need to sacrifice to you? And then God says, do you know what I want? Do you know what I want you to do? After all I've done, do you know what I want? 
He shows us what he wants in verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? He has shown you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And here we really come to the heart of this passage, and indeed the heart of the book of Micah. It's this threefold decree from God. Act justly, or in some versions it says do justice, love mercy, and then walk humbly with God. So these are the three things God asks us to do in response to him. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, what God has done for us is very uh, reflective of what he did for Israel. He rescued us from the slavery and bondage of sin. He protects us from the attacks of the enemy, just like he protected them from uh, Balak. He blesses us. He, he carries us through difficult times. And then he's leading us to the ultimate promised land when we are with him in heaven. So in the same way, in response to what God has done for us, what are we to do? And I think this is where he's getting at in verse 8. We need to do these things, uh, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. So let's work through these uh, each, each uh, one by one. Let's start with act justly or to do justice. Now, in the United States, where I live right now, this past year, 2020, saw an uprising in terms of the conversation around justice, around racial justice. This was after a string of uh, unarmed African Americans were shot and killed. Um, the most famous is uh, George Floyd, the African American man who uh, died under the knee of a Minneapolis police, police officer where the officer held his knee down on his neck for eight minutes and 47 seconds. That murder of George Floyd in particular lit a fire of national and then global protests uh, against racial justice. Now these protests are to date the largest mass protests in American history. And, and it actually spilled all over the world, including to Canada. Many major cities in Canada had uh, protests against racial justice. And so cries for justice, racial justice, social justice. And in light of this, what are we to do? What are we as Christians to do? I believe that justice, I, I believe there's a lot of different theories of justice that, that come from the culture and come from society, but I want us to root our understanding of justice in terms of the biblical analysis. Biblical justice, I believe, is rooted in the fundamental nature of God. Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness are, and justice are the foundation of your throne. We often forget that justice is an attribute of God, just as much as his love his grace, and his holiness. Because biblical justice is grounded in God, it has a transcultural, cultural, eternal absoluteness about it. What I mean is that God's judge justice doesn't change according to different times in human history or in different cultures. So God's justice is the same in Mongolia as it is in Canada, as it is in Brazil, 
as it is in China. God's justice does not change. Now, some essentials of biblical justice I'd like to list off for you. One aspect of biblical justice, and, and I guess a way to understand this is, how do we work towards a just society where people are treated equally, all right? Um, and these are some, some attributes I would say are part of that. Uh, generosity, equality, and advocacy. To work for a just society, we should be generous. Um, as Christians, we believe ultimately that all we have actually belongs to God. So all our financial resources are actually God's, but what he does is he gives them to us and asks us to steward them for him. And uh, we're supposed to steward in a generous way. And we see this modeled in uh, the Old Testament in a practice called gleaning. This is in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. Gleaning was a practice where the edges of a farmer's field were not harvested. So the, the farmer goes out to harvest, he far, har, harvests everything except for the outside of the field is left to grow. And what that was left for was for the poor of the land or in the community could come and take, uh, could, could harvest for themselves outside of there. Deuteronomy 24, 19 says, Gleaning shall be for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. They shall be for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. That means that what we earn is not just for us, but it is also to be given out to those who do not have resources or do not have the ability to gain those resources. Because of the gospel, because of what God has done for us, we should disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage the disadvantaged. Because of the gospel, because of what God has done, we should disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage the disadvantaged. So one aspect of biblical justice will be generosity. A second aspect of biblical justice is equality. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fa fairly. The care and concept for universal human equality is something that is a uniquely biblical concept. When the law was given to Moses, all the surrounding cultures had nothing similar in place. Humans were not seen as having equal dignity and worth in other cultures. Instead, humans could be exploited and used. But when we study the Old and New Testament, we see this overwhelming theme of God's concern and love for all people, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless. All are of equal worth in the sight of God. John Calvin in his Institutes writes this, Scripture helps us when it teaches that we are not to consider what man merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men to which we owe all honor and love. Christians must put themselves in the place of those in whom we see they need, they're in need of assistance. 
we must pity them as if it was ourselves who were experiencing what they were experiencing so that we would be impelled by feelings of mercy to go and to give them aid. He's really to, uh, uh, explicating the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then Matthew 25 gives this stunning teaching that says when we feed the hungry, when we give water to the thirsty, when we invite lonely people into our homes, when we clothe those who are naked, when we're doing those things, we're doing them to God. There's, there's some kind of connection between these physical acts of mercy and our relationship with God. Somehow the physical and spiritual are intertwined when we are doing these things. So biblical justice is generous, and biblical justice is about equality, that all human beings are created equal in the image of God. And finally, biblical justice will include advocacy. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed are those who consider the poor. Proverbs 29.7 says, the righteous care about justice for the poor. And so we as Christians need to have a particular care and consideration for the poor and the powerless in our community. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. For the Christian, doing justice means being generous, treating people with equal, equal concern, and then advocating on behalf of those without power. So that's our first point, doing justice. Secondly, love mercy. What is mercy? When we use the word mercy, we're often referring to the withholding of something painful or unpleasant. So two kids could be fighting in a playground. One gets the one kid in a headlock and he tells the kid, cry mercy, yell mercy, yell mercy, ask for mercy. A criminal in a courtroom throws himself onto the mercy of the court. The mercy of God is the compassion of God focused on us at our time of greatest need. The mercy of God is the compassion of God focused on us at our moment of greatest need. Mercy is given to those who are hurting or are in pain. We talk of mercies of ministry. Mercy is given when someone deserves punishment and we withhold the punishment. God shows us mercy when we deserve judgment and he withholds judgment. So we are to love this aspect of God, and we are to emulate it as well. So do justice, love mercy, finally walk humbly with God. I love this imagery of walking with God. It reminds us of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, who it describes them as walking with God in the cool of the day. We also, in the Bible, are reminded that Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God. I just find it this really comforting image, you know, of walking with God. During COVID, our family has been going on a lot of walks together just to get out of the house, just to sort of clear our heads. And I've been doing a lot of walking by myself. 
And I noticed that as I walk, the world sort of slows down. I tend to be more observant. I tend to see more than if I was running or riding a bike or driving a car. Walking implies slowness. Walking slow, we walk, we move slower. And it's the same with God. When we walk with God, we need to do it in a very slow way in order to receive from him what he has for us. The second thing I've discovered about walking is it's pretty mundane. It's not very exciting. Uh, it's slow and repetitive. It's one foot in front of the other. And I think this idea of walking is a key to spiritual growth. It's consistency. Don't, it's this challenge to not give up, to keep going, even if we don't feel like it, even if we don't see progress, even if it's boring. And so we are instructed to walk with God, but we're also instructed how to walk with God. We're told to walk humbly, to walk with humility. Walking humbly with God is walking in the understanding of who God is and who we are. God is the creator we are the creation. So there's this cosmic gap between humanity and God. And so when we got, walk with God, it must be done with this posture of humility. So up until now, we've really just been looking at admonitions. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. And if we ended it here, we would probably walk out of this place with just a big guilt trip of all the stuff we need to do because none of these things really come naturally to us. I don't naturally seek justice. I'm fundamentally selfish. I struggle with showing mercy, mercy to people who hurt me. Actually, in, in my natural state, I want revenge. And my natural bent is not to walk with God. I want to live a life devoid of God. That's my natural state, and that's your natural state. And the only remedy the only possibility of becoming the kind of person Micah is describing is to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, to understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Darren and I had a professor at Regent College named Daryl Johnson, and Daryl was one of the first people to teach me this uh, saying, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. The only place in human history where we see justice, mercy, and grace together is at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, the justice of God was satisfied. When we talk about the cross, often we just talk about forgiveness, and rightly so. But we dare not diminish the justice of God that the cross accomplishes. In the book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, Fleming Rutledge writes, Forgiveness in and of itself is not the essence of Christianity. That's amazing in itself. Forgiveness must be understood in its relationship to justice if the Christian gospel is to be allowed to have its full scope. So we know we need justice to live for 
community to, to, to flourish, for society to survive. Because our judicial systems would fall apart if we replaced justice with forgiveness. See, at the cross, justice was served because the punishment you deserved and the punishment I deserved was meted out on the Son of God. At the cross, mercy was also on display. Remember, mercy is about withholding punishment from those who deserve it. Dom Thomas Cranmer, in his homily of salvation, said, on God's part, God's part in justification was mercy and grace. Christ's part was satisfaction of God's justice. And our part is true and lively faith. And then he, he writes this, It pleased our Heavenly Father of his infinite mercy without any of our deserving to prepare for us the most precious jewels of Christ's body and blood, whereby our ransom might be fully paid, the law fulfilled, and is justice fully satisfied. At the cross, we see justice, we see mercy, and then we see the grace of God. One of the greatest contributions that the Apostle Paul gave the Christian church was the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith teaches us that there's nothing that we can do to contribute to our salvation. We are not saved by our works. We are only saved by the grace of God, which was supremely displayed to us by the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. We can do justice. We can love mercy. And we can walk with God because of what was accomplished for us on the cross. It's interesting in, in, in our passage, in verse 7 of Micah chapter 6, uh, the prophet writes, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See, the prophet recognizes that he has transgressed, that he has sinned. And now he's contemplating, how do I overcome that transgression? How do I overcome that sin? Do I offer my child? Do I offer the fruit of my body for my sin? And we know the answer to that question. We know we don't need to offer our children up for our sins and our transgressions. And the reason is because God the Father did that for us. God the Father offered up his Son, his only begotten Son, for our sins and for our transgressions. So Ocean View Community Church, allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform you into a community that does justice, that loves mercy, and walks humbly with your God. Amen. Thank you so much for allowing me to be with you this morning. Um, I pray you have a great service today and uh, a great week. And again, I want to come to Vancouver Island and spend time with you. God bless you. Well, that'll be amazing, the day when Santosh gets to join us in person. Well, we thank him so much for his great work on that sermon. I learned something. I'm sure you did as well. Let's uh, pray together, lift up our voices to God.